Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Good to see all you guys on a Sunday afternoon. Super excited to dive into your questions. Obviously, lots to talk about. Silicon Valley Bank. Wow. Out of nowhere, 48 hours to put how much systemic risk, contagion risk is there in the system? Is that the first of many banks to fail? Is it going to be a one-off? I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions about that. Before we dive into your questions, I want to remind everyone to shoot over to rebelcapitalistlive.com. Speakers so far, we got Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Robert Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, Hartman, my good buddy, Robert Helms, MC, Simon Black with SovereignMan.com and everybody's favorite, my good buddy Peter Schiff right here. And Brent Johnson's coming as well, but his his uh, face isn't up there yet. we got to update our website. We're going to have a couple more really fantastic speakers. So make sure you go to RebelCapitalsLive.com, get your tickets ASAP as we get closer to the event in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. Prices go up and you're not going to want to miss this event. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have Peter probably debate a couple people, maybe on Bitcoin, maybe on the dollar. These are things that you're going to want to see live. And the greatest component, I think, of Rebel Capitals Live is just meeting like-minded individuals. Getting to sit there, have a beer, and shake the hands with the speaker and ask them questions directly, face-to-face, in real life. I think that's uh, something that comes at a premium in today's day and age where we're all on Zoom and text messaging and FaceTime to actually go up to someone, shake their hand, look them in the eye, ask them a question, have a beer with them, whether they're a fellow rebel capitalist or Mike Maloney right here. (laughs) I think there's something very special about that. So anyway, get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com ASAP. All right, let's get to your questions this evening. All right, do you think credit unions or local community banks are safe a place to bank with? I don't trust the mega banks. Regional banks are in danger. I mean, it all depends. Some maybe, some, I mean, look, first of all, let's be clear on what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. They made some bad loans, sure, but they had a lot of treasuries, had a lot of mortgage-backed securities that they could have held. Uh, they just didn't hedge their book. They didn't hedge their balance sheet. It's just, why didn't they do that? I I, I don't know. Just someone asleep at the wheel. And uh, then they didn't really factor into the equation the possibility that you know 90% of their depositors are tech companies, and tech companies are really struggling right now. So you would expect, I mean, any of us, if we were there in the risk management department, I think we would have said, hey, we should probably expect for the amount of deposits to go down in the future, even if they don't have a run on the bank, just because these tech companies are going to be burning cash. That, you know, we've heard about all the layoffs in tech, all the struggles that they've had. Okay, well, you guys that are small business owners or business owners in general, you know how that works. When you have a tough quarter or you have a tough year, what happens to the your bank account? <laughs> It goes down, not up. So how they didn't see that coming and how they could own all of these T-bills or treasuries, most likely treasury the long end of the curve, and not hedge that interest rate risk, knowing 
knowing darn well that the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates. It's just boneheads, just asleep at the wheel, really. You know, the question is, George, do I think a credit union or local community bank are safe? I don't know, because I don't know what their risk management department's doing. I don't know if they're asleep at the wheel like these knuckleheads at Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, I think the best advice I can give you is obviously diversify your 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 bank account. I mean, if you've got working capital and you're a business, and let's say you need excess of 250, right? Because that's FDIC. Let's say you need 500,000 in the bank at all times just to cover your expenses, payroll, you know, you've got to have that working capital in there. Okay, well, just maybe try to spread that out <laughs> between a couple of different banks and have and, and diversify the banks you deal with. Like as an example, when I started doing real estate in Kansas City, I didn't know anything about macro. Nothing. Zero. I didn't even know what the Fed was. Didn't know what a treasury bill was. I barely knew what interest rate rates were. But I had the sense enough to say, okay, well, I've got a decent amount of money here and it's over the FDIC limit. Okay. I need to spread that out with a few different banks. And within those banks, I'm going to go with one big bank and, or maybe a couple big banks. And then I'm going to go with some smaller banks. And how did I decide which small bank I, or small banks, plural, I wanted to deal with? Well, first and foremost, I went down there and talked to the people. And I was lucky enough to get a, a meeting with the vice president of commercial lending with this one bank who I've now become good friends with. And I just, you know, look him in the eyes. He's a straight shooter. Use your gut, for heaven's sakes. And then ask them questions. I mean, I was drilling him on questions as to how they performed during the GFC. Because keep in mind, this is 2012. So GFC was in the very recent past. And they came out just smelling like roses. So I'm like, great. That means that you are very prudent. You managed your balance sheet very, very well. That's a bank I want to deal with, right? But then I still diversify. Or if I would have known back then what I know today, in addition to that, anything that I had over specific limits, and I'm going back to FDIC, I would that I would not have needed uh, immediately, you know, that I could have held off. I didn't need access to it for a month or three months, something like that. I would have just put it in T-bills. Just put it in T-bills. I mean, you guys that have watched my channel for quite some time or that have uh, tuned into these live streams, I get the question all the time. Like, what should I do if I'm not confident in my bank? And I, I have had the same answer going back to 2019 when I started this channel. It's like, listen. If you got over FDIC and you're not comfortable with that, and I would always preface by saying, I know it sounds crazy, but put it in T-bills. Why? Because I would prefer to have my counterparty risk with the government than XYZ Bank. And I know that sounds counterintuitive from a guy that likes small government and all these things, but hey, you know, you're going to put a gun to my head and say, what's the most prudent thing to do if I'm losing sleep at night, wondering if my bank is going to go out of business tomorrow, take the dry powder and put it into T-bills for heaven's sakes and roll it over. Just once a month, just roll it over. Make it a part of, of your routine. And if you need the liquidity, boom, sell it. You got it. Put it in the bank, move it out. You know, you've got that risk for a day or so. I guess that's the best answer that I can give you. And there's other more sophisticated ways. I mean, Joseph Wang was talking about this on Twitter, that how on earth, I, I don't know the, the specific department name, um, 
for basically risk management within the bank. I think it's the, the treasury department or something like that. But he said, this is just basic stuff. I mean, basic stuff by taking, oh, I'm sorry. He was referring to the depositors. So XYZ tech company, um, you know, they, they should have someone that's managing their balance sheet for heaven's sakes and managing their assets in managing their their bank accounts and their working capital and and to have those people you know have all their eggs in the silicon valley bank basket is just absolutely unacceptable that is unacceptable that this is third grade stuff here that we're dealing with so i have zero sympathy for the bank and i have zero sympathy for the depositors i mean shame on you at at one at some point our society is going to have to go back to making people accountable for their own actions. And if you lose all your money because you thought that you were just giving your money to a bank and somehow the bank puts that money in a vault and then they just give it to you, not realizing that you're lending your money to a bank. If you don't, you know, if you're not cognizant of that as XYZ tech company, shame on you. Shame on you. Did you do anything wrong? You know, that's what I hear on Twitter. All oh, they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. They weren't good custodians of their working capital. So what happens in a free market? They go bust. And then someone who was prudent with their working capital comes in and buys the assets of all the boneheads. And then the system is far stronger as a result. So I know I'm going off on a tangent there, but I think I hopefully answered your question, give you some food for thought, Tony in case you're worried, and it sounds like you are, uh, about what you should do with your savings. And, um, you know, if, if you're in the FDIC, I really wouldn't worry about it too much. But uh, if you really wanted to, you could diversify from there. And if it wasn't cash that you needed for three or four months, six months, something like that, for heaven's sakes, I personally would put it into T-bills. I mean, as for those of you who are Rebel Capitalist Pro members, you know that I've got a model portfolio. Uh, it's got $100,000 in there, my own money. It's not like paper trading. It's These are things that I'm actually buying. And I said, I want to have as much dry powder as possible right now because of the yield curve and all these things I talk about on the channel. I want to take advantage of maybe some cheap opportunities in the future because I think that there's some storm clouds on the horizon. What do I do? 10% gold, 90% T-bills, <laughs> 90%. And what I said on Twitter today is, is listen, you know, again, going back to the depositors, I'm an uneducated YouTuber for heaven's sakes. I've never taken an econ class or a finance class in my life. Never taken an accounting class? Zero. Almost flunked out of high school, for heaven's sakes. And if I know what to do, if I know how to protect working capital, how is it possible that these tech companies that supposedly are full of the smartest people on the planet Earth don't know something that an uneducated hack on YouTube knows from a standpoint of common sense? Uh, let's see. Do you expect full bailout? No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. I was talking to Josh today. And he said that most of you probably know this, the yields on the, the throughout the treasury curve just tanked on Friday. And that's the market just freaking out and saying, ah, we need you know risk off, risk off, risk off, risk off. So when the yields go down, the price goes up. That's more demand for those T-bills, those treasury across the curve though. And he said, uh, actually on Saturday, they started to catch a bid. And excuse me, on Saturday, uh, the yields started to go back up. And then uh, today, I think they went up again. And I, I think he was specifically referring to the one month T-bill. And so for if the market, the bond market, which is way smarter than I am, if the market is selling one month T-bills, if the yield on that is going up, that would lead me to believe that the, the bond market 
is saying, okay, uh, no bailouts, and the the Fed is going to continue hiking rates. Uh, they're not going to come out, and uh, I don't know if they had an emergency meeting today. I was hearing something about that. They're not going to come out and drop 50 basis points on Monday, like I've heard uh, many people say. I think if the market thought that's what was going to happen, that yield on the one-month T-bill would not have gone up on Saturday and Sunday. It would have continued to catch a bit, and it would have continued to go lower. In my, and that's just my humble opinion. Again, guys, I'm no expert on this. As you know, I'm just an enthusiast. I'm an amateur, uh, just trying to figure this stuff out, just like you. And I'll probably do a whiteboard on this on Tuesday, because I think I, I have a, a good enough understanding as to what happened and how kind of the plumbing worked behind what happened to do a whiteboard video on it. So expect that on Tuesday. But uh, no, I, I think my, now, now could we have a bailout? Absolutely, of course. Because there's a lot of people that had deposits there that have the ear of the politicians, you know, the, the, the Cantillon effect, right? You know, those people get a hold of the politicians and say, hey, you need to do this or I'm not going to donate to your next campaign, blah, 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 blah. And the next thing you know, they get a bailout, maybe. But I don't think the, the, the Fed is going to step in there. And also too, I, I think the Fed is, they're smart enough to know what happened. And they're also, I think, smart enough to know and call all the other banks that are similar and say, hey, how's how's your balance sheet hedged? Did you have hedges in place or were you just asleep at the wheel like Silicon Valley Bank? And, and my bet, or I would assume that most of them say, no, 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 we're, we're completely, no, we're all good there. So a, a lot of people are, I think, are, saying that this was a run on the bank. And I, I don't know that that is the most precise way to explain what happened because that assumes they they didn't have the assets to go ahead and make good on the deposits. And they, they did. It's just those assets had gone down massively in price. So I think when most people think of a run on the bank, they think of, okay, you've got $1 and you lent out $10. So when people come and they want their money back, then all of a sudden you don't have the money. And I guess effectively that is what happened, but it isn't really because they just massively levered up their balance sheet. It's because they had plenty of, of assets to match up with their deposit liabilities unless they have to sell. Now, if they could have held those assets to maturity, those bonds, whether they're mortgage-backed securities or treasuries, they'd have been fine because they would have been paid 100 cents on the dollar and then they could just... Whoever wants your money, sure, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. And the size of their balance sheet just reduces. But the mistake they made is, A, they didn't hedge out their interest rate risk, and B, they, they didn't. I, and again, I don't know how this is possible, but they didn't put two and two together on the on the, as far as the liability side of their balance sheet. They didn't sit there and say, hmm, all these tech companies are really struggling right now. And 90% of our depositors are tech companies. Therefore, is the balance in their checking account going to go up or down? Huh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, that's they might not have even had that level of discussion. Because if the answer is they're going to be there, and why I say their deposit accounts, because their deposit accounts go down, okay, they're going to be spending that money, let's say. Okay, well, if they're spending that money with a vendor that isn't at uh, Silicon Valley Bank, well, then they're going to transfer that the, uh, that liability, but then they've also got to transfer over those bank reserves. 
right? They've got to transfer over that uh, that that asset, and they're most likely not going to be able to transfer over a treasury. So they're going to have to sell the treasury to get the bank reserves to transfer over to that other bank, and that's going to impact their their balance sheet and potentially put them in a very compromising position, especially if they're forced to sell those treasuries at a massive loss because uh, they bought them at 1% and now they're trading it for 5%. I, I hate to go off on this, this rant, but man, oh man, I get so pissed off on Twitter when I see these people that are saying that this, this, they should be bailed out. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Bailed out? Like, have we, ne- have we learned nothing as far as moral hazard from 2008 and 2020? I mean, honestly, and the argument that you're hearing is, oh, all these tech companies that had money with them with Silicon Valley Bank are going to go out of business. Great. So what? I mean, if we're going to call a spade a spade, how many of those tech companies would be in business if it weren't for artificially low interest rates and the Fed pushing people out the risk curve for the last 12 years? How many people, how many of them would be in business? And it's, I think it's crazy that even not just with the Austrians, but across the board. You know, you hear people in Silicon Valley and, you know, they're they're all about free market capitalism. And they sit there and say, oh, yeah, there's all this malinvestment in the system. And, oh, we have all this misallocation of resources. Okay, well, when we flush the malinvestment out of the system, what do you think that looks like? Do you think that that looks like everyone just staying in business? No, <laughs> no. It means people go bust that shouldn't been in business in the first place. Because left of the free market, they wouldn't have been able to survive. The only reason they survived is because of central planning. That's unsustainable. And I'm sorry, but if you put your life's work and life savings into creating a dog walking app that just incinerates money, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and realize that you are the malinvestment that needs to be flushed out of the system. I'm sorry. And especially if you realize that, hey, I'm I'm the malinvestment, that's step one. And then step two is saying, well, if I am the malinvestment, well, then what can I do to protect the working capital that I do have left? Oh, let's put it all in this one bank that is completely tied to the rest of the tech sector. It's just, you know, and I kind of said it jokingly on Twitter, but I mean, I think there's some truth in it where I said if they weren't all these tech companies in Silicon Valley, you know, maybe they should have been a little more worried about protecting their capital and a little less worried about how many genders there are, right? Maybe if you would have taken your time and instead of allocating it to trying to figure out when the next Antifa rally is, you would have said, you know what, let's shelf that for a moment and let's look at the $2 million of working capital that we need. It's just sitting in a checking account balance at Silicon Valley Bank it's only insured up to 250. Oh, no, 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 Moody the Millennial. Don't worry about that. No, no, don't worry about that. Let's go protest about George Floyd. You know, let's go try to get Gavin Newsom to legally castrate children under the age of 10. Well, let's 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 do that. Let's not worry about our working capital. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm more than willing to go there. That we've got 24 hours in a day. You've got a specific amount of mental bandwidth. And I have zero sympathy for these tech companies that just completely dropped the ball, that were, alloc- that were obviously allocating more of their time and mental bandwidth than they should to these woke agendas. 
I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to go woke, go broke, right? George, do you recommend a country in Central or South America to relocate? How do you, would you go, um, how would you advise going about finding one? You got to go there. Just, you know, go online, do some research, try to figure out the five that you like the best and, and go there for two weeks and see what you think. And you've got to prioritize or, or you've got to list your priorities. Like for me, one of my biggest priorities is weather. I do not like cold weather. And for me, I'm in a much better frame of mind when I wake up every morning at 630 and the sun's shining, the birds are chirping and it's it just, and it's nice and warm and I can walk down to the gym in my shorts. I don't have to, you know, scrape the frost off my windshield or any of this nonsense. So for others, that might not be a big priority. But if that is a priority, then you need to look at Medellin because it literally has the best weather in the world, as far as I know. Maybe La Jolla might be a little bit better. But uh, actually, I don't think it'd be better. I think it, you can only, all you can do is tie <laughs> with Medellin. That's how good the weather is. And it, they call it the Valley of Eternal Spring for a reason. So if, if again, if that were a priority to you, then Medellin should be on your list. But if that's not a priority, or maybe you like cold weather, okay, then maybe you wouldn't, maybe you'd like Bogota a little bit better, or maybe you'd like Mexico City a little bit better. So you see, you've got to just list what the important things are for you and then try to kind of narrow it down to the specific cities or geographical locations that have what you want. And then you simply go there two weeks, get to know the people, try the food, go out to restaurants, to some cafes, to bars, go to the local malls, talk to a real estate agent, look at some apartments, go to the ocean, do whatever, and then just get a vibe for it. And if you like it, leave it on the list. If you don't, cross it off and just process of elimination. When to use nominal or real? Does nominal even matter? Well, I think it can be helpful in some situations, but then to your point, it's all about purchasing power. So I think your final analysis should include like real GDP. You wouldn't want to just look at nominal, but if you look at just nominal, that can give you some insights uh, that you might not have just with, with real. So I think both is useful, but at the end of the day, to, uh, to your point, I think you know, inflation adjusted prices are, are far more important. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So I think First Republic Bank will have a run tomorrow. I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, are they sufficiently hedged? Did, did, were they asleep at the wheel? 
And you see, even if they do have a bank run tomorrow, if they weren't asleep at the wheel, that probably won't be that big of a deal. It, it, it won't impact them that much because if they have to sell, because A, they'll have plenty of assets for the deposits because it, it's not like the deposits or it's not like the liabilities side of your balance sheet is, is entirely deposits. I would assume, and I don't know this, but I would assume that they have plenty of assets. Now, it's just if they have to sell those assets to give the depositors their money back or to transfer those deposits to somewhere else, you know, let's say their depositors like, no, 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 I want to take my million dollars and buy T-bills with it. Okay, again, they're going to give that some bank that liability and uh, therefore they're going to have to transfer that asset as well. They're going to have to get the reserves. They're going to have to, or the cash, they're going to have to sell a treasury. Now, if they have to sell a treasury that was hedged, no problem, because you're going to take a huge haircut on the treasury when you sell it, but fine. I don't know what the best uh, hedging vehicle, I would imagine it would be some sort of swap. I don't know, maybe an interest rate swap would be my guess. I, I don't, don't quote me on that one. But there's a lot of ways that the, the, the pros uh, that are actually paying attention can actually hedge this stuff. So you just take your treasury, you'd sell it, then you'd sell your hedge, and it'd basically kind of net out. And then you'd be good to go. Then you just transfer that depositor's deposit wherever they want to go and done, handled. You just, your, your balance sheet shrinks. So what? This is what should happen, <laughs> right? So if they were paying attention, if they actually had pros and adults working at the bank uh, instead of people that were wondering how many genders there are, then uh, yeah, they might have a run, but it, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. How much do you think student loan payments kicking back in May will have on the economy, or do you think it'll continue to be pushed back? It'll probably be pushed back. I, I'd be surprised if they do anything about that. And if they if they do continue to kick the can down the road, I did a whiteboard video on this, and it definitely adds inflationary pressure. I don't know that that in and of itself would create inflation, consumer price inflation, because there are so many variables involved but it's definitely a tailwind uh, you you're you're giving them a large number of americans much more purchasing power than they otherwise would have and they're not really producing any more goods and services now i'm not condemning them i'm not throwing them under the bus i'm just saying this is just the way the math works so if they do have more purchasing power than they otherwise would and we're not creating more goods and services as a result, then that's going to be an inflationary pressure. And then let's talk, you know, I could go on for the next 30 minutes about the moral hazard involved with that. I mean, you want to talk about the moral hazard with uh, Silicon Valley Bank being bailed out. My goodness, you've got just as much moral hazard with uh, student loan forgiveness. And let's be very, very clear, guys. I didn't get this question, but I need to go on record and I need to make you all aware of this. We're really at a crossroads here. And I don't know that most people understand the significance of Silicon Valley Bank being bailed out. In my opinion, and this is my would be my base case, if they are bailed out, that would set a precedence that now all of a sudden we cannot have a depositor lose one penny because it's not their fault that they you know lent their money to a horrific bank. I mean, again, think about that because you're lending your money to someone. You're lending your money to an entity. So are we now going to say that anyone that lends money to someone else should always get their money back? What? Okay, so now hard money loans, they're going to get their money back. You lend money to 
some business, you buy a bond and you're always going to get a hundred cents on the dollar. I mean, so again, people have to understand that when you're giving your money to a bank, they're not taking those green pieces of paper and putting them in a safe and then just charging you. And then when you come get the safe, like a safe deposit box and oh, here you go, here's your green pieces of paper. No, you, you are lending. You're saying, here's my money bank. I'm lending it to you and you can do whatever you want to with it, whatever you want. And I'm just going to hope and pray that I get paid back. But for some reason, people don't have that mentality. Why? Because we've created so much darn moral hazard by bailing out these banks for the last two decades to the point where people don't aren't even cognizant. Just like, again, if we wouldn't have bailed out these banks in 2008, do you think that these tech companies, even if they're focused on how many genders there are, do you think that they really would have had all their eggs in that Silicon Valley bank basket? No, absolutely not. Because they'd be like, we don't want our bank to be like what happened to the banking system in 2008, where all these depositors lost their money. So they would have been much more careful. But you see now, because we create all this moral hazard, we just privatize all of the profits and we socialize all the losses. So why wouldn't the banks take additional risk? You got to look at it from Silicon Valley's standpoint, right? Why, why not be asleep at the wheel? Sure, they didn't know if they got the bailout, but they, they probably assumed that they'd get one. So who cares? Why hedge our interest rate risk? Or why, yeah, why hedge that side of our balance sheet? Why hedge the interest rate risk on the bonds that we own? That's just an extra expense. And if we blow up, we'll get bailed out. Who cares? Going back to the student loan question, it does the exact same thing. If you're in high school, why would you, why wouldn't you take out as much debt as humanly possible when you went to college, even if it was completely unproductive? Because you would know, hey, they got a bailout. I'll most likely get a bailout. So my point there is if we go to a bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, the next step, I'd be willing to bet my bottom dollar. This is what happens. It might not happen overnight, but eventually they're going to say, oh my goodness, we can't have any depositors losing one penny. So we're going to have to increase FDIC from 250 up to infinity. Why not just have FDIC insure all deposits? It's it's not your fault the bank went under. No, that's the CEO the CEO's fault. So why should the depositors have to be accountable for their own actions? No, we live in the participation trophy society. Remember, or no matter how w bad you do, no matter how bad your decisions are, you still get a trophy. Remember, so no matter how bad your decisions are as a depositor, you still get that trophy. You still get a hundred cents on the dollar, right? So in order to achieve that. Let's just make FDIC limitless and we'll just have the government back FDIC. And then where do they go? Well, they say, well, if we're going to do that, well, then why don't we just move all the deposits from the bank's balance sheets onto the feds? That's the ultimate FDIC because the fed can't go bust. So that is the ultimate insurance. So why are we dealing with all these banks and fractional reserve banking and having to worry about our deposits? Oh, let's just get that monkey off our back. Let's just put all the deposits to the Fed, and then we got nothing to worry about. Then we can just put our nose to the grindstone and really focus on being productive or really focus on consuming more and maybe being more unproductive, right? And you guys know darn well from watching my videos, if the Fed has all the deposits on their balance sheet, effectively, what do we have? Drum roll, please. Central bank digital currency. Because a central bank digital currency isn't necessarily changing the current dollar that we have. It's just a consolidation of the network of ledgers, along with some point of sale software. So if we're consolidate, if we're just taking all the deposit liabilities from Silicon Valley Bank, from whatever other bank you said, 
And they were like, well, this is a great idea. Why didn't we think about this before? Let's just have the Fed take all of these deposit liabilities and put them onto their balance sheet. Done. Handled. Never have to worry about a banking crisis ever again. But then you've got a central bank digital currency. Whoops. Oh, no one could have predicted that. Or you never let a crisis go to waste. And you say, oh, George, well, we can't let the free market take over. Oh, yes, that, that would be horrible. We can't let these people go bust because then what would happen? And, you know, on Twitter, they say, oh, well, then the big banks are just going to own everything temporarily, maybe. But then what do you think is going to happen? People are going to if all these banks go bust, people are going to be so paranoid that some smart entrepreneur is going to come up and say, hey, I got an idea. I'll start a full reserve bank. And how many depositors do you think he is or she is going to get overnight? Millions, millions. <laughs> They'll be like, sure, full reserve? Yeah, sign me up. You mean all I have to do is pay you 50 basis points a year and you're just going to take my cash and, and, li and literally put it in a vault and just store it for me, basically? You're not even going to lend it out? Or if you lend it out, you know, if you put it in a time deposit, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's in a, a checking deposit, basically. So if it's a demand deposit, then you pay them. And then if it's in a time deposit where you say, hey, you've got my money for three years, then they pay, they might pay you because they can lend that out. You see, and all of a sudden, we the free market goes back to basics and we have fractional reserve banks competing with full reserve. That would be the solution that I'll bet you the free market would come up with. So those are the directions we're going here. You know, assuming that this has contagion risk and systemic risk and all these banks go bust, we let the free market take over and it's gonna be some pain. You, Hey, again, as Austrians, we have, or as people that are sympathetic to those ideas, free market capitalism, we have to understand that when you flush the malinvestment and the misallocation of resources out of the system, it ain't pretty. That's some that's a, some tough medicine to take. People go bust. People lose money. People lose their jobs. Absolutely, they do. That's the price we have to pay to get the system back onto solid ground right? You, you can't sit there and say, well, I'm a proponent of the free market. And I think we should get all this malinvestment out of the system that the Fed has created by having interest rates artificially low. But yet I don't want any depositors to lose money. Th those, <laughs> those two things can't exist in the world we live in, unfortunately. So take your pick for heaven's sakes. But again, if they were going to have this systemic risk, you'll know, free market. And I'd almost guarantee that you'd start to see some full reserve banks start popping up. And they would actually be popular uh, and they'd give some competition to those, the, the big giants that are fractional reserve because people still have that PTSD. Or again, you go down the, ba the bailout nation path and that leads us straight to FDIC everything. Oh, Fed's balance sheet. Oh, look at that. We got a central bank digital currency. Assuming interest rates may trend down in 2023, would you have any concern about investing in 30-year treasuries? Sure, absolutely. I mean, because you don't know if interest rates are going to trend down. What if they don't? Then then you're going to take a massive haircut on that. Listen, I can't give you personal investment advice, but I can just tell you what my philosophy is. And my philosophy is you just buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive. Interest rates on a 30-year right now, I, I don't have this the chart in front of me, and I haven't looked at it in a few weeks, but I, let's just say that it's 4%. might be a little less, but anyway. Is that cheap, historically speaking? Just remember that there's an inverse relationship between the yield and the price. So we, we've had, just go back to when Volcker raised rates. What was the interest rate on the 30-year back then? Let's just say for the sake of the example that it's 15%. Okay, that's cheap, <laughs> historically speaking, because if the yield is 15%, 
Think about how low the price is relative to if the yield is 4%. So what you're doing here, and I'm not saying this is wrong. It's just, I'm just saying I don't do this. You're, you're trying to figure out the direction, the price direction of something first and foremost. You're trying to assume that interest rates are going to go down. You're trying to make a bet, basically, that interest rates are going to go down in the future. That's never, ever, ever where I start. I, I never start by trying to predict a price direction. I just start by asking myself if it's cheap or if it's expensive based on historical standards. And if it's not cheap, I don't even worry about the price direction because I'm not going to buy it unless it's just dry powder. And then I would never buy a 30-year for dry powder because when you have to cash it in for the liquidity, you could have to cash it in at a massive loss, which would be exactly what Silicon Valley Bank had to do. You see, if you're using your dry powder <laughs> and putting it into 30-year treasuries, say, oh, I'm putting my dry powder into treasuries. No, you're, you're basically doing exactly what Silicon Bank did. From a standpoint, of if you need that dry powder, you're going to have to sell. You might have to sell at a massive loss. And then the asset side of your balance sheet is going to take a huge haircut. Now, you might not go bust, but you're making the same mistake, same exact mistake. Assuming, now, if you're, again, I want to be very clear. That's if you're using this as dry powder, you're probably not, you know, this isn't a, a personal answer to your question. I'm just saying broadly speaking, but uh, to be specific to your question, uh, I can't give you individual investing advice. All I can tell you is that I would, I wouldn't even consider 30 year treasuries right now, regardless of what price I, I thought or which direction the price I was going or which direction the interest rates were going because they're just flat out not cheap. Could there be an issue with the banking system on Monday if a lot of companies move money over 250 to different or new accounts to ensure? Yeah, th there could be. I mean, maybe the banksters are just that stupid. Maybe I'm just giving them way too much credit. Maybe they're all as stupid as Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe all of them are asleep at the wheel. And they just don't even recognize what just us amateurs here on YouTube find blatantly obvious. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they've got like some, you know, 15 hour, like chimpanzee just with a blindfold, just throwing darts as far as what they should do with their balance sheet. I mean, if that's the case, then yeah, there, there could be more issues in the banking system. But if they've got people that are in charge of risk management that are even slightly coherent, I mean, they don't even have to be at like a rebel capitalist level. They just have to be at like literally a third grade level of common sense. Then they shouldn't have a problem. But to assume they have a third grade level of common sense, again, maybe that's overestimating their ability. <laughs> as pathetic as that may be. This stuff just drives me crazy, especially these bailouts. Man, I tell you what, if they get a bailout, I will, it, not just from a standpoint of my analysis and doing whiteboards and explaining it and just saying this is wrong, on a personal level, I will be pissed. I mean, I, I will literally be pissed off to the point of like punching walls if they get a bailout. If, if you guys see me on the next live stream and my right hand is like bandaged up <laughs> or it's in a cast, you know what happened. It's because the stupid Silicon bank, bank got a bailout and I got so pissed off that I went over to the nearest door and put my fist through it. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
Never a dull moment. Man, oh man. Okay, next question. Please explain LIBOR versus SOFR. So LIBOR was just an interest rate that was created by literally just calling banksters in London. I think it was London exclusively. It's London, was it interbank official or offer rate, I think is the abbreviation. So they'd call these banks in London just first thing in the morning and they'd say, hey, what interest rate would you be willing to lend overnight? And they'd say, oh, 3.1, one would say 3.2 and the other would say 3.15. And they'd say, okay, so the average there's at 3.15. So LIBOR for the day would be 3.15, literally that easy. And it's just something that, uh, you know, people say, oh, it's not a real market rate and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I was a little, I was a little more sympathetic to LIBOR because although it wasn't a market rate from the standpoint of actual transactions in the real financial economy, it was something that the free market produced. They came up with it. No, no government came up with LIBOR and it was working pretty darn well. So, but the central planners didn't like it because they weren't in control of it. So what is SOFR? SOFR is just simply them looking at repo transactions in the actual repo market and basing that overnight rate on specific transactions that occur. So they're not calling up someone and saying, hey, what would you lend at? They're actually looking at the transactions in repo. So you say, George, why isn't that better? Well, I don't know. Why, did the fr why didn't the free market choose to do that? Why didn't the free market say, hey, this LIBOR thing is stupid. Why don't we all just go over to SOFR? Is it because they're stupid and the central planners are just brilliant? Probably not. One of the problems I can see is just going back to the repo spike. And you'd have to talk to someone like Snyder that understands the plumbing a lot better than I do. But think about if repo spikes to 10%, like it did September, 2019, and you're using SOFR. Okay, so now all of a sudden, all those rates adjust to SOFR, which would be 10%, roughly. Whereas if you look at LIBOR, during that spike, LIBOR didn't go up. LIBOR was the same. So now how much systemic risk would there be from the LIBOR or SOFR rate with all these contracts and all these derivatives are, are using that? How much systemic risk would there be if it spikes up from 1% to 10% just overnight? I don't know. I, I don't know. You'd have to ask Jeff or you'd have to ask Zoltan or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I understand the system quite well, but not that well. But I, I can't imagine that it would be a good thing. I can't imagine that it wouldn't create some sort of counterparty risk. And so that that's one downside. And I'm sure guys like Zoltan or Jeff could tell you another 10 reasons why uh, the free market chose LIBOR over SOFR. And uh, I know Jeff would say he's not a big fan of SOFR. Zoltan, uh, he, he's more of a you know, kind of mainstream, I think. He would probably say it's a good idea. But the thing with him, you know, he's working for Credit Suisse. So I love his insights, but sometimes I think you got to take him with a little bit of a grain of salt because I don't know that he can be as honest as Jeff Snyder because Jeff Snyder doesn't have to answer to anyone because he doesn't, he works for himself. What's going to happen in commercial real estate? Well, I think this is a great question because, and one thing I want to encourage everyone to do when we get done with this live stream, if you got a little time this evening, is check out the most recent podcast from my good buddies, Macro Alf and Andres Steno Larson. I cannot recommend this enough. So let me put it up here. This is their most recent episode they came out with yesterday. 
And it's make sure that you listen to this one. It's Panic in the Banking System. That's just their most recent one. So I, you guys, I'm sure, will be able to figure it out. They go into a deep dive on uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and it's absolutely exceptional. It's it's intelligent. It's coherent. It's it's from two guys that really, you can tell they understand the plumbing uh, very well. It's not just from someone saying, oh, it's fractional reserve banking and it's a bank run. That may be right to a certain degree, but I wouldn't consider that a deep dive where uh, they really go into it. And one of the things they were saying is how this really could put commercial real estate at risk because a lot of these banks you know, were in search of yield. They have all this cash to keep it easy. They had all this cash from their depositors. You know, it's an asset side of the balance sheet. What do they do? Well, you know, back then, let's say T-bills are yielding 50 basis points. We don't like that. Well, maybe I should go out and buy some sort of mortgage-backed securities that are tied to commercial real estate. And so then what happens if we do get a bank run and they have to liquidate all these commercial mortgage-backed securities? You know, what does that do to the commercial real estate market? I can't imagine that would be a good thing. Um, I, I would assume that that would make interest rates really spike. And these are entities that don't have 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. How does that play out when you know these guys have to re- where they have to roll over their debt. And instead of rolling over their debt at a 3.5% rate, they've got to roll it over at a 7 or 8% rate. You know, that puts them straight into the, the no bueno zone, <laughs> if you will. And Andres and uh, Macro Alf have some incredible insights as to, you know, uh, kind of how that would, how that Python would work its, or excuse me, how that pig would work its way through the old Python. All right, I think that's about all the time we'll have. Let me do some shout-outs here. We've got Chris Bravo in the house. We've got MC, Charles Turner, Savage Goose, the Bivona. Wayne Smith in the house, Fatal9998. Gaye, Lorde, or is it Gay Lord? Who knows? Maria28, Charles Turner, Farouk. Ah, big fan of WWE. <laughs> Wondering Doc. Who else we got? Gregory Stewart, Diana D, Michael Veloff, Lay Laz G, Swear Works, Baxter, All Nighter Hider in the house, my good buddy, the OG All Nighter Hider, Jimmy Hat, Christopher Bates, Bull Dag, another OG. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. We're gonna have to follow this story tomorrow. See how it plays out. Might be some fireworks. So until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll see you in the next video and get your tickets to Rebel Capitals Live now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.